This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. Today, my guest is Ron Blue. Ron is widely considered to be the father of Christian financial planning. He's the founder or co-founder of the Ronald Blue Trust, the National Christian Foundation, Kingdom Advisors, and the Ron Blue Institute for Financial Planning. Ron's passion has always been to help Christians manage their money and their finances in ways consistent with their faith, not only so they can manage their own family budgets well, but also so they can become generous givers, supporting churches and ministries in the work of God's kingdom. Ron's the author of more than 20 books, which I guess he wrote in his spare time, and Ron has also served on the boards of numerous organizations. So, Ron, welcome and thank you for, for joining me today. Well, it's a real treat, Rich. I'm looking forward to our conversation very much. I've just written a book, as you know, about the importance of leadership values. Um, and I make the case that God is much more concerned about a leader's character than he is about a leader's accomplishments. And I write about 17 critical leadership values and you know things like integrity, humility, forgiveness. But one of the chapters I wrote was on balance because uh, most of us at one time or another in our life are going to be out of balance uh, in terms of the demands of our careers, the demands of our, our home and our family. And uh, you know, I can remember early in my career, we, we also had five kids, uh, Renee and I, uh, we, I guess we didn't know what exit to get off the highway on. Uh, we went a couple of exits past our, our exit, but, um, but I remember once when I was at Parker Brothers Games and I was the young CEO uh, of that company and we were going through a difficult period uh, for the company. And it was it was one of these things. I just had to work late nights. Um, and so what I did, again, you got to set boundaries. I, I, I had these little kids at home and I, I decided I'm going to be home by six for dinner. And I'm going to have dinner with the family. I'm going to read them a bedtime story, say their prayers with them, maybe give them a bath and, and put them to bed. And I'm going to be back at the office at eight and work till midnight or one. And I didn't do this for a long time. But when those periods came of high, high stress and high demand, I, I, I made a commitment to the family to say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to be there for dinner time, and then I'm going to go back to work. Uh, and my wife said, if you do that, I am, you know, I'll be fine for a certain amount of time, you know, I, I can handle this, but it would be so good to have their dad home uh, at dinner time because you're gone all day. And, and you know, so I, I talk in the, in the book about how balance is a really critical leadership uh, uh, value. And balance is not easy to achieve, I say, because uh, a lot of people work for someone else, right, who makes the demands. Right. And right. Uh, you can't, but what I say in the book is I say, look, Go to your boss and explain your balance issues and and try to negotiate some boundaries. Like, you know, I know my kids today working in this 24-7 texting and email environment. Um, 
work never leaves them. I mean, it's always on their iPhone or their 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 laptop. Uh, you know, they're getting texts over the weekend from the boss. And, you know, sometimes you just sit down with a boss and you have a hard conversation to say, look, I need I need to be free on the weekends unless there's an emergency or, you know, I, in some cases it might be a, you know, a single mom that says, look, I know work starts at 830, but I can't make it till nine because I got to drop my kids off at school but I'll I'll make up for it later in the evening after the kids are in bed. I'll I'll do some additional work. I think you'd be surprised that some of your bosses might be willing to accommodate that if you just speak up, if right. you just kind of make the case that I'll work hard for this company. And if you do that, if you're a boss, you're responsible for the balance, the work-life balance of the people that work for you. You know, mm -hmm. you need to set an example and be flexible enough so that they can have a, an abundant life, right? And not just be slaves to their workplace. And if you do that as a leader, you will have the most loyal employees you can imagine. Because if the, if I feel like my boss understands my situation, he's flexible, she's flexible, um, willing to give me the time I need here and there, I'll work even harder for that organization because I so appreciate that boss. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, one of the things, uh, I had offices that were remote, um, so I would go visit these offices periodically, and I would always take the uh, office, the person running the office and his spouse out to dinner. And during the dinner, I would turn to the spouse, and I, and in every case, I think it was uh, men that were running the offices, but I would say, is he home at night? Is he home on the weekends? Mm -hmm. Because if he's not, it's his choice. It's not a requirement of the job. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so, I mean, I sent that signal really strong uh, because I had lived it and I believed it. You know, when I was at World Vision all those years, every year my board did a performance review on the, the CEO and they talked to my five or six direct reports, you know, and did a 360, what we call a 360, you know, how is Rich doing? They're trying to gather information. and But for a number of years, they included my wife in the 360 and they asked those very questions. How's he doing? Is he traveling too much? Is he home? And she so appreciated uh, that the board of directors was thinking about her and our family and not just about the ministry needs. Um, right. Because the board mm -hmm. understood they had seen previous leaders of World Vision, like Bob Pierce, burn out and flame out uh, because they didn't have balance in their lives. And so they realized that if the leader doesn't have good balance, then the ministry will suffer eventually uh, from, from that. And uh, well, listen, while we're talking about values, I wanted to ask you, again, I write about the what I consider 17 critical leadership values in my book. But as you think about your leadership roles over the years, what are the two or three leadership qualities or values that, that you think are, are really important uh, and significant uh, to your leadership? I mean, you, you can't select them all. I, you, you can write a book on it like I did, but there's usually two or three that pop to the surface that most leaders say, you know what, I always felt that this was critically important in my leadership. Yeah, I always felt like maybe the most important uh, value was humility. Um, from this standpoint, um, we all were gifted, so I brought nothing into this world. Uh, I'm a, operating according to a plan that God predetermined before the foundation of the earth. 
So if I began to take credit for what God was doing, I was in deep trouble. But I had that question. As a matter of fact, I was at Liberty University last week and I had a student ask me, he said, you've had a lot of success in life. How do you remain humble? And I said, well, the only way you can remain humble is to have the proper perspective. And when you begin taking credit for something that only God uh, could do or it was God's gift, you're really running a risk. So uh, humility was uh, certainly a big one, and uh, integrity has always got to be near the top of the list. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think another one was teachability, uh, being willing to learn, being willing to make mistakes, uh, but learn from those mistakes. Uh, they're they're going to occur. Um, so I, those would be probably the top three uh, values uh, that I had. Integrity and humility and teachability uh, were very, very yeah. important to me. You know, I, I call integrity the North Star of leadership, that mm -hmm. no one wants to work for a leader who lacks integrity. Um, and when you are a leader of integrity, you create a safe workplace, right? Uh, a place where people can flourish. They trust the leader. The leader's not going to manipulate them or, you know, uh, use them in any uh, way. Um, uh, the leader's going to make fair and just decisions. They're, they're going to treat people uh, fairly. Uh, and if you trust the leader that you're working for and also respect that leader, because integrity uh, generates respect, uh, your workplace is a happier, more healthy uh, place to work. And people that are happy and healthy and secure are more productive. Uh, oh, so yeah. ultimately, a lack of integrity takes a terrible toll on an organization and on the office politics and, and all of that. So I, I, I agree with you on, on integrity and humility. Um, it really is crucial. And part of humility that I like to talk about is and this gets to your teachability issue. If you're not humble, why should you listen to the opinions of other people? Because you're the smartest person in the room, right? And uh, uh, people should just do what you tell them because you have all the answers. Well, that kind of leader, first of all, denigrates his whole team. In other words, I don't really need a team around me except to do some busy work and carry out my instructions. I don't want your advice, right? Because I don't need your advice. That is demoralizing to a team of people that you've assembled. And, uh, and also, uh, you know, Proverbs has a lot to say about leaders who won't listen. They, they call them fools. Uh, Proverbs calls them fools. Um, wise counsel and surrounding yourself with gifted people who are also gifted by God in different ways than you um, is you'll be a better leader. You'll make better decisions. You'll have better input. You'll have more information on the table. You'll leverage all the gifts of your team. I, I sometimes use the example of an orchestra conductor and imagine the scene of chaos if an orchestra conductor decided that they had to, in addition to conducting the score, they had to play all the instruments <laughs> because they knew better how to play the violin or the trombone or the percussion than the, the artists that were out there with those gifts. I mean, it would be like a comedy routine, you know, running around the stage and picking up the violin and then picking up the trombone. And well, that's what a leader looks like who doesn't have enough humility to recognize the giftedness uh, in the people they lead. Oh, absolutely. Now, in many, you know, Jesus said, greater works will you do than what he did. And so I think 
if if I interpret that right, if I'm doing a good job as a leader, uh, I'm seeing people outperform me. Right. Uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, that's not a bad thing. And uh, and that comes back to the teachability also is uh, I can learn uh, from that. I, I also um, think that if you're building an organization, uh, you've got you've got to allow people to make mistakes um, because they will. And if you're not allowing them to be in positions, maybe they'll stretch them a bit. Uh, they can't grow. Mm-hmm. And and I, I heard a story, I assume it's true, of, I think it was a Procter & Gamble situation where uh, one of the uh, managers uh, uh, spent $2 million on a marketing campaign that was a disaster, went in to re- resign, uh, and his boss said, resign, we just spent $2 million on your training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I think that that's a really valid point. You know, and along with that, um, allowing people to make mistakes is the willingness to forgive in a leader. So mm-hmm. I remember times when people working for me made terrible mistakes of judgment and raised the question, should they be fired? And I felt the same thing. Like, you just learned such an important lesson that why would I fire you now? Because, you, you know, mm-hmm. we've already paid the price of that mistake and you know, we all make mistakes and, you know, you're forgiven, you know, just go and know that, you know, you're wiser today than you were a month ago. <laughs> right. And, uh, right. and so those can be, you know, and a leader too, not only be, has to be willing to offer forgiveness uh, in the workplace, which helps keep short accounts and keeps everything healthy, but needs to be willing to ask for forgiveness because leaders will make mistakes. And sure. when, when a leader comes to their team and say, you know, I, I took us in the wrong direction. I, this was this was a mistake, and I'm sorry. Um, and uh, I hope you'll forgive me and support me, and let's 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 fix this thing that you know I was responsible for for, for breaking, and let's move forward. I, I think that is also very redemptive in a workplace. Ron, I you know I want to use our time well, and I know everybody listening wants to hear you talk about money. And uh, <laughs> you're the money guy. You've spent your whole life managing money and helping others manage their money. And yet, Scripture gives us some very serious warnings about money. I want to read just a couple of passages that I, I know you know very well, probably by heart. But the first is from 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I can't imagine a more uh, a warning, a blinking in red neon lights in the scripture about money from that verse. And then this other one from Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So my first question about money, in all of your years of financial counseling, have you met Christians for whom the pursuit of money really became too much of an obsession in their lives? And uh, and what happens when that uh, that occurs? And then can you describe what a healthy relationship to money looks like? 
Well, for sure. Um, and, you know, we live in a culture that is spending billions of dollars every day trying to make me discontent. Yep. Um, and so we live in a uh, we live in a dangerous culture because it appears that many things are okay. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, wealth is certainly not uh, wrong. A second home is not wrong necessarily, and the car you drive is not necessarily wrong. But you can fall into the trap of looking for those things that you can buy, providing something that only God can provide. You know, it says also in that uh, in First Timothy or Second Timothy, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. But you tie that to what you said, and I make two points. Number one, he didn't give us all things to entertain ourselves. And I think there's a big difference between entertainment and enjoyment. Um, entertainment goes away. Uh, joy is a condition of the heart uh, that uh, promises something, hope primarily. And uh, uh, I, when I talk, I talk about the paradox of prosperity. And the paradox of prosperity is that uh, the American belief is that the more that you have, uh, the better off you are. Uh, and so there is a pursuit of wealth. But the reality is the more I have, the more choices I have, and therefore the more confusing and complex life becomes. And anybody that's owned a boat <laughs> knows what <Yep>. I mean. <laughs> I've never owned one, but <laughs> or, I, you know, I, my, my saying is never own a boat, but always make friends with someone who owns a boat. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Um, the paradox of prosperity uh, is that the more you have, uh, the more confusing life becomes because you have more choices. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the principles is that giving is the only way you can break the power of money, which is why the Matthew 9 passage or Matthew 6 passage is so critical. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be mm -hmm. also. And I, I illustrate it with an open hand. If I hold what God gave me with an open hand, he's free to put in what he wants and he's free to take out what he wants. And when I close my hand over what he's given me, it now owns me. Well, that's good. Uh, and I've lost my uh, contentment because, I'm, because now I'm driven by fear, mm -hmm. uh, fear of loss. But if I hold it, understanding that God owns it all, and he puts in what he wants and takes out what he wants, I'm always free because uh, it's not mine. And that gives me freedom. And only somebody with the eternal perspective can be truly content in life, yeah. I believe. And money is a great indicator of my contentment or discontentment. You know, I think I told you this story long ago. You may not remember it, but years ago, there was a financial crash in the markets and um, and I panicked. I was a young father, uh, you know, I think at the time I had four little kids and and um, 
and we were saving for college and all of those things. And I saw like a third of our savings disappear in two days. And so I got out my spreadsheets and I looked at the accounts and I, you know, I, I burned the midnight oil, like three nights running, you know, staying up late and the next day doing the absolute wrong thing, calling uh, my broker and saying, sell this, sell it all, sell it all, get out of the market. And my wife finally sat down next to me after the second or third night where I was just a man obsessed with what I'd lost. She said, honey, you know, you are, there's something that's come over you, this money, it's just money, you know, you'll make more money, you know, you've <laughs> got to let go of it. And I said, well, you don't, you don't feel the responsibility I have for supporting the family and this, that, and the other. And she, and she said, honey, you've got to stop. You've, you've got to trust God. And she said, you know what I think we should do tonight? And I said, what? She said, I think we need to take out our checkbook. And with what we have left, we need to write some big checks to ministries oh, like, like World Vision. This was before <laughs> I worked at World Vision, like World Vision and Campus Crusade for Christ and other ministries. And I said, write checks? Do you realize how much <laughs> we've just lost? And she said, I really, let's pray about this. So she took my hand, we prayed about it, and we took out the checkbook. And, you know, I think we had lost at that time, it was maybe $50,000 in the market. Um, and we wrote checks that night for $20,000 wow. and put them in the mail the next day to ministries. And I just felt like I had been released from the oh. anxiety and the worry and the stress. I was almost like Scrooge in, you know, when he, he kind of has his revelation in the, the Christmas Carol and he's giddy and he's giving gifts to everybody and he's happy and he's making sure that tiny Tim is okay. And, and it was just, it just totally transformed the weight and, and the hold that that money had on me. And uh, I'll never forget that, that feeling that, and you said, you've got, you've got to break the spell. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to make sure it doesn't grip you. I tell you what, that is really significant. And that is exactly what I was talking about to do that it puts money into its proper perspective. Yeah. And that's why uh, God doesn't need the money, but he does want my heart. Right. And where my money goes is where my heart goes. And so uh, I, you know, I tell advisors, the best thing you can do for your clients is to help them give because you're, you're freeing them from uh, the, the burden of money. Uh, I, I tell you another thing, Rich, that uh, uh, Judy and I have found is that uh, giving cash gifts that are not deductible. Mm -hmm. So the deduction is irrelevant. It's the gift that counts. Yeah. So today, the uh, for example, the uh, they were picking up our uh, waste waste management people. And the guy that was doing that had stopped in front of our house because he was doing something. And as I was, I had been walking the dog, and as I walked up past him, it was like the Lord said, why don't you give him some money? <laughs> so I reached in my pocket, I had my billfold with me, and I pulled out some 20s and uh, gave them to him. And you know, the smile on his face, I doubt if he's ever been given money driving a, a truck like that. And he started talking about his kids um, and the dog that they had. I was walking the dog and 
that's the most joy that I get is the giving of mm -hmm. cash. Um, just because, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, well, I, and I had a story a little bit similar to what, not as dramatic as what yours is, but uh, last year, uh, I had, and I'm a financial planner, so I had everything planned. And I already, we were done, we were in the last week of the year, and, and we know of a family that has 10 kids. They, they had, they had two, they adopted three from Africa, and then another family, the parents died and they took all five of those kids. They had 10 wow. kids. And Judy said, we need, we need to write a big check to them. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I'm done for the year. I'm Sounds like Judy and my wife Renee are reading out of the same Bible. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So that was it. It was one of those things where I I gritted my teeth and I wrote the check and felt a lot better yeah. about it. <laughs> well, that's that's wonderful advice, Ron. There's one other dimension of money I want to explore with you a bit, and it's it's about money in the organizations we work for. And I think you said earlier, you know, money's everywhere, and it's all over our workplaces. So wherever you work, you could work at a hospital or a school or a community center. There are budgets and targets. Uh, we measure everything by financial measures. We're paid with money. And what we're worth to an organization is expressed in the size of our paycheck. If we're considered to be worth more, we're paid more. If we're worth less, we're paid less. We're rewarded with money for good outcomes. And when we have a bad outcome, we're often punished by money being withheld from us, or a bonus or whatever would be withheld. And so money runs through the veins and arteries of every kind of organization. But one of the things I've seen is that money can also create real leadership problems in an organization. So we've talked about the personal hold that money might have on, on a person, but what does money do within an organization? So when a leader is driven too much by money, too much by financial outcomes, it can lead to some negative behaviors because they start to put money ahead of people in the organization or outside the organization. So one extreme example that comes to mind is if you look at the opioid pandemic and the drug companies that produce these pain-killing opioids, it started out with a great mission to help people manage their pain, right? What a great thing to do, people that have real severe pain, chronic pain, and here's a way to help them manage it. But as the money started rolling into those organizations, what became a noble mission turned into a drive for more and more profit. And they pushed their pills more and more and more through the medical systems and hospitals and doctors until the very people they were trying to help became addicted. Many of them became addicted. And ultimately, this lust for more sales, more money, more profit started killing their own customers. So here's a here are companies that are literally killing their own customers in pursuit of short-term profits. So, uh, so what I've seen is that, you know, the Bible gives us warnings about money, the love of money in particular, but that love of money can also be very distorting in an organization if a leader doesn't understand uh, where to put the limits. So what advice would you have for leaders uh, about putting revenue and profits in proper perspective in their organizations? Well, I'll share a story. Um, 
I was testifying before congressional subcommittees, it was in the early 90s, and the senator, one of the senators said, uh, what advice would you give to a family? And I, without thinking hardly about it at all, I said, well, I would tell them, Senator, to live within their income, to avoid the use of debt, uh, to set long-term goals so that they prioritize their spending between the short-term uh, and, and the long-term. Uh, and I would um, save for the future. And he, uh, he wrote them down and he repeated them back to me. And then he said, well, it seems to me that that'd work at any income level. And I said to him, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. Yeah. <laughs> and here was the point. God's word, when it speaks to money, it has three characteristics to it. Number one, it's pretty simple. It's not hard to understand. Live within your income, that's pretty easy. I mean, that's pretty easy to understand. Avoid debt, that's pretty easy to understand. Give generously, easy to understand. So, it's simple, but the beauty of God's Word is that it's relevant to everybody and every organization. So the principles don't change for a business. When you move from family to a business or when you move from business to government, they're still the same principles. Uh, and thirdly, uh, they're very transferable or repeatable. So when you look at a business, uh, a business can uh, very easily fall into the trap of mismanaging money uh, because it's a measure because they're looking at it as a measurement, as opposed to just a, uh, a means of exchange, and for and and money becomes the object as opposed to the mission, right. as you mentioned. So. Uh, it's it's tragic, uh, but that is the way that uh, so many, and you know, you've been in the Fortune 500 world where you're measured on your quarterly profits. So, a terrific pressure uh, to think short term. Yep. Uh, and that's contrary to the scripture. The longer term, my, my one of my principles that I've said is, the longer term the perspective, the better the decision is likely to be today. And businesses have, it's really shortened. I mean, you know, it's amazing to me that every night in the news we get what the stock market did. Right. As if that's really <laughs> that important. Uh, most people, it's totally out of my control. So whatever the stock market does, it does. And, yep. um, so, so my advice is follow the basic fundamental principles, and that's why God's Word speaks to every issue of life uh, in a way that works. And He speaks to businesses just as well as He speaks to, uh, to individuals. Um, so, unfortunately, uh, not too many of us believe that. I want, I want to read you two quotes on this topic. The, the okay. first is a quote of myself from my new book, Lead Like It Matters to God. And the second is a quote from Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. 
So the first quote is from my book, uh, money can become a counterfeit purpose that infiltrates an organization over time and replaces its higher purpose. At first, it may be unnoticeable and the company can continue to perform well. But over time, if a higher purpose isn't lifted up by its leaders, the company just becomes a host organism for people who want to extract money from it. And then this quote from Steve Jobs, which I thought was extraordinary. Apple's goal isn't to make money. Our goal is to design and to develop and to bring to market good products. We trust as a consequence of that, people will like them. And as another consequence, we will make some money, but we're really clear about what our goals are. So Steve Jobs saying the goal of Apple wasn't to make money, it was to produce great products. And, and as a result of that, people are gonna buy them and they're gonna end up making some money, but money wasn't their purpose for being in business react to those two quotes well they're absolutely true um, money is uh, symptomatic of decisions that have been made but but it's uh, it's only the measurement it's not the goal it can never be the goal I mean it can be the goal but if, when it becomes the goal uh, then all of a sudden what you're working for is temporal um, as opposed to uh, working towards uh, a drug product that will heal pain, that's that's a good goal. Mm -hmm. And when you lose sight of that, you've lost sight of uh, purpose. And so, uh, money. That's why God speaks so much. Why Jesus spoke so much about money is because uh, money is the most objective measurement of spirituality that there is. Mm -hmm. It's the only area of the Christian life I can't fake. Yeah. Look, <laughs> look, at, look at a person's uh, checkbook or financial statements, and it tells you a lot about the value of money yeah. in their lives or the role of it money. It tells you what they believe. Yeah. It tells you what their goals, their values, and their priorities are. You know, whenever I say that, there's always <laughs> in, uh, speeches is that, People say, "Oh my goodness, I never thought of that." Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but, but that, but it's true. It's the most objective measurement of what my goals and values and priorities are. Yeah. That's how I spend my money. So, so Ron, to get out of uh, corporations and organizations, uh, you are kind of the money guru uh, in, in so many ways with the book you've written. I want you to give some advice to somebody who might be listening that maybe they're in their 20s or early 30s. They've got, they're at the beginning of their career. They might have one or two kids. Uh, they've got rent to pay. They, they're having trouble making ends meet. What, what advice do you give uh, maybe a young couple or even a single like, like that about, about money? Well, uh, first of all, that money or, or behavior follows belief. So check your heart um, and, and make that decision. There's really four decisions that are heart decisions. One, who owns it uh, is the most significant financial decision that you can make mm -hmm. because that'll change your perspective on everything. Even if you're having trouble, if you believe that God owns it, then you think differently uh, about it. Secondly, make the decision to be content with what you have. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, be content with what you have. So the answer to the question of how much is enough is how much you have. Yep. 
that's enough. Thirdly, God provides supernatural wisdom for those who ask, James 1.5. And God will give you wisdom as you think through your situation. And fourth, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So am I going to live by faith uh, in the fact that what I know to be true, God loves me, and as the four spiritual laws says, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Yep. And that's really true. So I, my advice is begin with the heart and examine your heart. And then secondly, those five habits that I talked about, live within your income and avoid the use of debt and so forth. Those are practical, uh, easy to follow uh, habits to develop. And there are only five habits and there's only, that's all you can do. So I don't, I don't ever tell people to start with a budget. Um, I tell them to start uh, with a pie chart. And the pie chart is this. There's only five habits and there's only five things I can do with money. I can give, I can live, give, owe my taxes, owe my debt, or I can grow it. Those are the only five things I can do. And I know every one of those with the exception of my lifestyle. And, and my lifestyle mathematically falls out if I know my income and I subtract the other four, then I know what I'm spending on my lifestyle. Yeah. So you can put that in a pie chart uh, and it, it expresses your priorities in percentage terms. And, and that's it. It's such an easy thing. Follow the high five habits. Ask yourself, am I spending money according to my priorities? And the only way to have hope for the future uh, is to have some margin in your life. It's been proven uh, over and over and over again by research that when I have some financial margin, I'm much more secure. Uh, and probably 80% of Americans couldn't live two months uh, without yeah. income. No, that's really true. So, And then the COVID so pandemic has really revealed... How close oh. to the edge so many are living. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, some people have got an illness or an accident or something that like they've lost their job. Uh, those things uh, are very real. Uh, and uh, you've, you've still got to come back to the basics uh, and do what you can within uh, your now new limits. Hey, listen, uh, our time is just about up, but I want to end on one of your quotes that I actually quote you quite often in this. It's in at least one of your books, but it's it's this. Do your giving while you're living so you're knowing <laughs> where it's going. And the reason that quote is so wonderful, uh, first of all, how many people hoard their money until they die and they have a will and an estate and they leave their money to family and children and and charities and this, that, and the other thing. And you're saying, what a tragedy to wait until you're dead and you can't enjoy seeing what your money can do. Uh, do your giving while you're living. And if you do that, then you, you're knowing where it's going, right? You, you can see the impact of, of your money. And that sentence has actually led my wife and I to make some gifts to our children uh, who are all mm -hmm. starting families and trying to buy their first home. And like if we 
live to 90 years old and die and leave them some money, but in their 20s or 30s, they couldn't buy a home, they couldn't manage, you know, what good is the money to them then? Uh, right now is when they need a little help. And um, so it's it's been revolutionary for us to think, you know, let's, we're going give to give them some of this money anyways. Why not give it to them when they really need it, when it can make a difference in their life, they can buy their first home, you know, they can... Uh, they just had a baby and they need a bigger place to live and we can help them with that. So talk about that, 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 that piece of advice. Well, I, I tell you, there's probably uh, no greater satisfaction than when you do give. And I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I uh, put my family into the giving category. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another principle that's in that book also that says, if you love your children equally, you will treat them uniquely. Yes. So kids, you know, you've got five, we've got five. They're not identical and their needs are different and they're different at different stages of life. So we've tried to raise our kids and say, we love you all. And if you have a need, we'll help. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we got to equalize it out. Right. You know, I have a son who's a pastor and I have a son who's a vice president mm -hmm. at a big bank. And their yeah. needs are completely different. Absolutely, yeah. We had a single mom for six years uh, of our five. And so if you love your children equally, as God loves us equally, but he treats every one of us uniquely. Well, that's a great word to end on right there. Some wisdom from uh, Mr. Ron Blue. Ron, I want to thank you for, for sharing with us today. And... Um, you know, I, I think for anybody that wants to have a healthier relationship with money, I would really encourage them to order one, if not all of your 20 books. Uh, <laughs> but you just you just told them they only have to read one because they're all the same principles. So that's right. Uh, but check out Ron's <laughs> books. There's so much wisdom in those books. And you're going to be dealing with money the rest of your life as a leader, as a as a head of your family. And uh, the principles in there are just life giving. Thank you, Ron Blue. Well, thank you, Rich. What a treat it's been to spend this time with you. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast and check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.